Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Hello, and welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm glad you've tuned in to today's episode. I'm Jacqueline Witt, Professor of Strategy here at the U.S. Army War College and the War Room podcast editor. Today, I'm happy to have in the studio Lieutenant General Christopher Cavoli as the next guest in our series on perspectives in senior leadership. Lieutenant General Cavoli is a U.S. Army officer who is currently the commander of U.S. Army Europe. He was commissioned through ROTC at Princeton University in 1987 as an infantry officer. He has held a number of operational and joint assignments and commanded the 25th Infantry Division, but much of his career has been focused in Europe. His first assignment was in Italy, and his career has taken him back to Europe several times, including twice as a fellow at the Marshall Center in Germany, and now in his current role. Lieutenant General Cavoli, thanks for joining us today on A Better Peace. Hi, how are you? It's great to be here. Great. Uh, I'd like to ask you first to tell us a little bit about your role models or strategic leaders, military or civilian, contemporary or historical, um, whom you admire the most. Well, I've had the opportunity to work for an awful lot of great strategic leaders um, personally. Um, wow, some really, re- really fantastic officers who uh, really shaped my career. But out of deference to them, I guess I'll go, go with historical. It's sometimes easier not models. to talk about people who are still living yeah. right, and breathing and doing the job. Um, so the ones who aren't, let's see, um, who aren't still living or breathing, Alexander um, was incredible because he could take an operational innovation like logistics and turn it into a strategic advantage that carried him across most of the known world at a super young age. And he had the ability to understand when a single personal act, in his case usually an act of courage, would have a wide effect that achieved a strategic result. Sometimes just his presence at the key place on the battlefield turned turned everything um, uh, for years to come. So Alexander, Augustus, who knew how to build institutions and created institutions that endured uh, for centuries, uh, you could argue millennia. Um, but he was a strategic leader who, who who led through institutionalizing, notwithstanding his many uh, his many uh, downsides. Uh, right, none, Mar- of, none of them are perfect, probably. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, to say the least. Uh, Marcus Aurelius, because he um, led at a strategic level, ethically, and uh, you know wrote about it. But um, you know, the compass that he had inside his. Uh, inside his soul was uh, was inspirational and is kind of hard to hard to match um napoleon napoleon i mean napoleon i think stands out in history for being an individual who understood the interplay of war and politics and who was uh, brilliant at turning converting battlefield results into political mm-hmm. Um, conclusions, and he, he a, a guy who really could consolidate the the gains made on a battlefield. In the modern era, um, in the modern area, I'd, I'd have to say Marshall, 
in a lot of ways for the same reasons as Augustus, just because Marshall was an institution builder. But I guess most of all, what we think about when we think about Marshall was his ability to uh, his ability to use people and to manage people to build the institution. Um, so he wasn't building a personality-based organization, but he realized that he couldn't build a great institution without the right people and, sure. and was pretty ruthless in the way he went about doing it. And, and Eisenhower, just in my current role, of course, I value, um, I, value I, I envy Eisenhower's ability to manage allies and to work right. work across national lines. So that was a long answer to a short question. No, but it's I think it's a it's a nice one sort of survey of a lot of Western military history where you've taken us from the from the classical period all the way up um, through the twentieth century. How did you how did you learn about these leaders and these these folks? Um, reading, you know, and um, reading. I, I had the good fortune to grow up um, mostly in Europe. Uh, through elementary school and high school. So a lot of it was prompted by, you know, things that I would see. You can't go sure. to Rome too many times without eventually becoming becoming curious as to what a Caesar was. You, you yeah, know. or without knowing sort of where Napoleon is operating and things like that. I right. think in the, in the U.S., our historical time frame is somehow so short uh, that we forget that there are hundreds and literally thousands of years of human history right. um, that, are, that are all around us. Lots of time, lo- lots of time reading as well. Sure. And... Uh, I, I, um, I love art history, and um, and it's very hard to study Western art history without having a thorough understanding of the uh, of the events being portrayed, usually Absolutely. or the illusions being made. Sure, know? and literature and, and art are so wrapped up in the story of, of war and nations and empires and things like that. They're they're really inextricable, even if we think of them as sort of separate realms. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. No, I really I really like that. Um, if you think about this is a much more pragmatic question, but if you think about colonels, um, and now as a three star, you've worked with lots of colonels. You were at one time a colonel yourself. Of course. Um, what do you think it is that separates the very best colonels from the rest? Um, I had the opportunity to talk to uh, the class at, at lunchtime earlier and um, actually talked about this a little bit. Um, so colonels are officers who have a vast amount of experience and a huge amount of skill. So they've been in the army 20 years and more. So they got a lot of experience. Right. They got a lot of skill because they got selected for colonel, which is you know probably the last truly merit-based promotion that there is. Um, and they have this a sufficient amount of authority to wield that experience and that skill set for the institution. It's all a sort of nexus of those of those things. Yeah, so like you know we always say majors, iron majors make right. the division run, colonels make the army run. And um you know what's interesting about colonels is of course most of them have received their last promotion, right? I mean just mm-hmm. numerically. Um but they remain so dedicated and many serve for many years um as colonels. And they just accrue greater and greater experience and greater sort of referent authority in the institution the farther they go. Um, so, so the best ones are the ones who remain committed and eager and energetic and, and use that drive to, to employ their experience and their 
judgment for the institution. And um, I think the second great qualifying um, characteristic of great colonels is that last part I mentioned, the institutions. Great colonels are people who realize that, that they are no longer working a job. They are sustaining, developing, and evolving our institution. Mm -hmm. So they are people, they are officers who, are, who have the whole institution in their hands. And the ones who realize the gravity of that responsibility and devote themselves to it um, are, are super valuable to us all. Now, and that perspective shift might be, I think, both difficult and really important um, to make. Are there things that you think colonels, O5s, and, and sort of junior O6s can do to help make that mental shift? Um, yeah, I, I think because I, I watch I watch it happen every day, right? I, I mean, I think. Um, the first thing is to serve on a higher staff, right? As soon as they have the opportunity to serve on a higher staff, higher staffs being largely three and four star staffs that are driven by by colonels, um, they they realize that the operating force and the generating force are not really as separate as we think they are, mm -hmm. right? It's all part of the same institution, and and you know one without the other is like trying to clap with one hand. Um, so as soon as they work on a on a higher staff, most most colonels get the opportunity to understand where they can benefit the institution and the operating force at the same time. Um, I, th I think that's the biggest principal thing. The second thing is um, w w colonels normally get to a position where the directness of their um, of their competition with other officers at this, the same rank is is greatly lessened. Mm -hmm. you, you know, it's not like three company commanders standing side by side and, you, you know, one's one, one's two, right. one's three. Uh, they're contributing in a much more, they have the opportunity to contribute in a much more collegial fashion and in a way that seeks win-win options all around. And, um, and as soon as colonels realize that, they, they make that transition into being this institutional leader for us. Yeah. Great. No, and I think the vast majority of the ones I work with have made that transition. It's that. not like a minority or anything. No, I think that's great. I think that's great advice um, as I think about what we want our students to sort of leave here understanding. Um, I'd like for you to think about a strategic issue, and, and we don't have to get into any of, of the specifics, but can you talk us through how you approach strategic level problems um what do you hmm. what do you do to think through problems yeah so there are um some of these are going to sound like platitudes and, and i apologize <laughs> in advance but they're, they're really not um the difficulty of being a strategic leader is that there are people on all different sides of any given issue and all of them are probably at least partly right. Mm -hmm. um, um, there, there aren't any simple solutions at the strategic level, which is one of the things that make them strategic issues. This is the great saying, right, that if it was easy, it would have been solved by now. Solved right? by I, now I, or I, I solved before be it gets to your desk. And right? m most of them are trade-offs, right? M most of the decisions are trade-offs. Um, it would be good to do that, comma, but... And there are people on each side of it. So I think the biggest, the biggest challenge of decision-making at the strategic level is to be able to wrestle with trade-offs objectively. 
um, and to realize and internalize emotionally that the solution that ends up being agreed on is probably not going to be optimal and it is probably not going to be 100% your own solution. It is probably going to be shared with many people, and it won't be exactly what you thought it should be. There are just so many different stakeholders in any given situation. I think as you move toward a solution, it's very important to remember that everybody involved probably has the very best interest of our country at heart, the very best interest of our institution at heart, comes at things from a perspective that is um, educated and judicious and is saying what he or she says for a darn good reason and has that position for a good reason. And the only reason I don't necessarily agree with it might be because I haven't paused long enough to really understand Mm it. Um, So uh, a, a great officer once told me that as he he rose higher and higher in ranks he he realized that it was more important to practice inquiry before advocacy and um, I think that's a great great starting point for strategic problem solving great asking the right questions it sounds like too we might frame the problem that you stated as one of satisficing versus optimizing where you're coming up with a solution that's workable and agreeable Maybe not the optim, maybe not the optimized solution all the time, um, but when you have time constraints and resource constraints, um, satisfying gets us a, a long way. Yeah, 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 it does. But but I I think I'm not really talking about satisfying as much as realizing that there are no problems at this level that that have a clear cut. Solution. And answer, okay. And and that depending on which angle of the problem or which contributing factor you, you you're you're favoring, mm-hmm. you come up with a different answer to solving the problem. Sure. Um, the other thing that, I, that I'm trying to point out is that you know as you as you go to the strategic level, you don't own any thing completely. You don't completely own the issue. You, you share that issue with other organizations, with other people, with other leaders who have just as important a role in solving it as you do. And it becomes really necessary um, in order to avoid satisficing and to come to a solution that, that recognizes the trade-offs and attempts to compensate for them. You've really got to listen closely, I sure. think. That's a great distinction. If we think about good days and bad days, and everybody has them, um, can you think about a, a day that you would say is maybe the the worst one you've had as a strategic leader? What what did that day feel like? What was it? What was the problem? Um, my, I I can't give you a day, but I can give you a category of days. Any day that your soldiers die is war's day. Um, that, that, that doesn't change. There are a few things that do not change from the time you're a lieutenant till the time you retire. You know, one of them is, you know, the feeling you get when the um, national anthem plays. Um, one of them is the pure pleasure of having a cup of coffee after a good morning PT session. <laughs> that doesn't change. Um, but man, one of them that just never changes is 
the feeling of um, responsibility and grief that you feel when you lose a soldier, whether in combat or in training, and um, it, it just never, you, you may never have met the soldier. Um, as I go farther up, you know, it's less and less likely right. that I've met the soldier, but that feeling never changes, and it is always my worst day as, as a leader. Right. And I think, I imagine you wouldn't necessarily want that to change, right? Keeping keeping that connection <laughs> to humanity. If, if, if it were to not be the worst day, um, yeah. that might say something, that might say something too. I guess so. What I guess I wish is I wish I had a lot fewer worst days. Sure. No, absolutely. What what do you do now to manage the the, the bad days um, when they come? What what tools do you have sort of at your disposal? Um, okay. Yeah. So um, I, I'm a big believer in the Army's wellness triad. Long before I knew that it was called the Army's <laughs> wellness triad, um, I, I think that if you're not getting the requisite amount of physical activity. If you're not eating well, my goodness gracious, I'm Italian. Of course, I've <laughs> got to eat well. Um, and, and, if, and if you're not getting an adequate amount of sleep, um, it is going to be very hard to manage stress. Um, it, but the other thing I think is um, work, work-life balance. I know many strategic leaders, um, I know many leaders at all echelons scoff at the idea um, but it's just true. Uh, y- you've got to find that balance in your life that satisfies your family requirements, your spiritual requirements, and your work requirements. Uh, because if if uh, if you're say a colonel or above, you're in this for the long game, and um, and and we need you to have gas in the tank when we step on the gas pedal. Mm-hmm. Um, so so I personally rely very much on my family. If I don't get the right amount of time spent with my family, um, I, I, I don't feel right about what's going on. Um, and I, uh, I'm just a, a personally pretty, pretty religious person. So I, uh, so, so, so sure. that's an important fraction in it too. Good. No, I think that's, that's really good. Again, g- good advice. If you think about the flip side of that question, what does a really good day look like? What does a great day as a strategic leader look like? A good day as a strategic leader is when you have been trying and trying and trying to change something in your organization or to guide your organization in a certain way or to get your organization to internalize something. And and sort of out of the clear blue sky, you hear an echo of that come back to you. And you realize that, oh, my gosh, it's working. They have been listening. Um, yeah. No, it's 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 not that nobody listens. It's just that these organizations are huge, mm-hmm. and sometimes it feels like you're, you know, you, you're trying to drink the ocean. And you know, well, I know that one sip did something, but boy, there's a lot of sips right. left. Um, um, but when you see what you've been trying to do with the organization actually get reflected in the organization's actions or the things you hear. That's that's a great feeling as a strategic leader. When that happens and there is no recognition on anybody else's part that I had anything to do with that, it's my best day as a leader. When when 
when when it just changes when it's just changed and it's got nothing to do with me that's a perfect mm-hmm. day yeah great um you've talked a little bit already about the importance of balance and the importance of managing um your wellness your family all of those things can you talk to us a little bit about how you do that for for yourself at, at your level how do you manage your time your calendar the white space your reading list all of the demands that you have on on you i i have um I have never met um, a senior leader who thinks that he's got that mastered. <laughs> it is it, it's it's the hardest question because um, there are people who you just you just owe time to, and um, and there's a larger supply of um, folks who need to interact with you than than you have minutes in the day. And um, there are a couple of things you've you've got to carve out of it, right? So so it just has to stop. If I'm gonna if I'm gonna drop below seven hours of sleep, it's it's got to stop. If 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 I'm not gonna get in some PT that day, it's just got to stop. So there are a couple of things you have to do. You, you know, a couple of different senior leaders have different, you know, mottos like three, two, one, and stuff like that. So I, I go for, you know, I have to have eight hours of sleep. I have to have um, three meals two of them small and one of them adequate and I have to have um, an hour of uninterrupted physical activity with no w- w- not including recovery and 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 sit down time mm-hmm. if, I, if I don't get that I'm I'm out of balance so I just designed my my calendar around that when my calendar isn't designed around that we usually have you know a discussion with you know with my personal staff like hey man you know what happened to my pt or or why were there only six hours of sleep this day um and recognize you're not always gonna gonna get that but you gotta you you gotta shoot for that that's that's the first thing the the second thing is i think i take a pretty analytic approach to my my use of time i actually have you know um, somebody on my staff makes a pie chart of how I used my time this mm-hmm. past month or this past quarter. You spent this much time looking down and in, this much time talking to NATO allies, this much time. Um, and you do it from a couple of different perspectives, you know, and, and, and you look at it and see if you're spending your time the way you want to because frequently I discover that I'm not spending the way I t- my time the way I thought I was spending my time sure. or, or not in accordance with the priorities that I had laid out previously. Um, so those are a couple of tools. I think that there are some things you have to know about yourself in order to be effective as well. The first one is you've got to know whether you're an introvert or an extrovert. Um, and if you if you know that, then you're going to know um, whether there's a point on your calendar when there have been too many people around you or mm-hmm. not enough people around you because right. it affects your energy levels and it affects your productivity. Absolutely. Um, and, and that's tough. I personally am a bit of an introvert. And there are just times when what I need most in the world is just to be left alone it's for some, a little it's bit. some time. I think it's <laughs> surprising to some people how many um, military officers, especially at high levels, are introverted um, because the job is so public facing and it's there's so much interaction. Right. Um, but I, I, I think you're in good company. I, you know, it might not even be so much that you're that one is an introvert. It, it, it might be. You know, everybody always talks about, it's one of your questions here, you, you, you know, how do you make white space for yourself? Well, the first part about white space is that there's pretty much nobody else involved, right? Right. <laughs> it's, it's, and that's why it's white space. 
Um, so sometimes it's not even really an act of introversion to ask to be left alone. It's because that's the only time you have to think about mm-hmm. things and to, and to, and to do things. So, so you kind of got to know that about yourself. You, you know, sure. what, what is the fraction of in, in, interpersonal relations you need to be having on a daily basis versus time left alone to, to work through things. Um, you got to know basic stuff about yourself, like how do I fall asleep easily? You know, what are the conditions in the room? How do they need to be done? Um, do I read? on paper better or electronically. I had one boss I worked for who insisted that everything be printed out. Um, and, you know, at first you're kind of like, wow, does that make sense in this today's day and age? And the answer is it doesn't matter if that's, the, <laughs> yes, if that's what makes that's, him effective. That's what we need to do. Right. Um, um, so th- those are a couple of things that I think about. No, you know? I think that's really helpful. Um, I'd like to go back to something you said from the first question, which was you learned a lot by reading. Um, is there something that you're reading now or you've read recently that you'd recommend to the listening audience? Hmm. Um, well, first, I would say that um, I have found that the biggest enemy of good reading for me is bad reading, specifically Internet-based reading hmm. or short-form um, um, reading. It is very, very easy to get on my mobile device during a few minutes between here and there and read cursorily right. and read things that may not be written in depth and, to be honest, read things that I want. I went into it knowing I wanted to read as opposed to things that I didn't realize were going to be of interest to me or sure. of use to me. So the first thing I would answer your question with is uh, – I find personally that I have to be very careful with how much of my reading is done short form on like Mm -hmm. web surfing type of thing. Um, The second thing is, well, I I read newspapers every day and I read the parts of the newspaper that don't have much to do with what I do for a living. And I read a news magazine routinely. Um, In my case, I I read The Economist, and the part of The Economist that's most valuable to me, for example, is all of those little articles that are about things that I don't know anything about Mm -hmm. or that aren't my AOR. Because you're reading plenty of other stuff about that. All I get is stuff about the other stuff, right? Um, And and then I'm one of those folks who always has several books going at once or has a number of books going at once. But one of the things I always do is – I'm also one of those people who's willing to read most of a book, and when I've kind of got it, and just say, "Okay, well, good to go." I've and- got what I wanted from this book. <laughs> I don't need to read the, you know, the, the last um, appendix to it or something. But I, I do reread a couple of things almost every year. So, like, I reread um, um, Caesar's Memoir of Gaul, De Bello Gallico. Um, I, I, that's just a great book. Um, I, I I read the appendices to War as I Knew, which was Patton's mm. uh, memoir of the Second World War. Um, that that that's just fantastic stuff. Very deep insights. I mean, they sound like they're about World War II, but they're really about war. Right. And um, and um, I I reread portions of of the Iliad. Um, I I love to reread the um, the prayer 
of Hector over his infant son before he goes out that, to that make that just makes me cry every time I read it almost um where he holds his son up <laughs> and and says a prayer yeah. in front of a drama key yeah it's it's beautiful yeah we just had a group of students uh yesterday who we were discussing part of the Iliad as part of a reading great books sort of program um, and introducing students to that work is uh, always a lot of fun. Yeah. And it's one that I hope they'll go back to. It's one of those ones, you know, so, so that uh, that prayer, that passage, yeah. mostly mostly it's his prayer, is um, so there are some things about being a soldier, about being an American soldier that are about being American. And, and, and that's a beautiful thing. Sure. There are also some things about being an American soldier that are about being a soldier, and they're sort of eternal. And 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 um, and, and that latter part makes up a large part of the warrior ethos and things like that. And you know that always recharges you to uh, to reread to reread that. J- just like Good. you know reading the great documents of of the founding of the United States uh, uh, recharge sure. you on being an American. You know. Yeah, and I think there's value in going going back to texts that you know well and there's value in rereading and there's value in in depth um as well as the sort of news oriented reading that we maybe do on a day-to-day basis that is that is very very true i'm, I'm lucky that i'm married to somebody who probably reads about five books a week <laughs> so she screens all the uh, christina screens all the <laughs> all the books in the world for me and then and then i can pick from them but y- you know yeah that, that's a really good point the the ability to go back and read a text in depth, you know, a narrative book, uh, you know, a nonfiction book that you pick up at the, at the airport, at the library, something is useful to, to go through for the facts that you get. But really, for, you know, the depth of thinking that, 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 that sort of conditions your soul going back and, and, uh, and rereading great texts like that is very important. Great. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, I've really enjoyed the conversation, and thanks for coming to Carlisle. Thanks. Thanks very much. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu and have a great day.